good or bad PR. It's our lives in the face of open fascism and groups like the, you know, the Proud Boys, which are alt-light um, Western chauvinists who have been weaponized as the defense forces of uh, fascists. So, you know, they're, they're hiding behind the shield of so-called free speech when the reality is, is that, you know, there is no debating fascism. We have to resist it as fiercely as possible. All right. Well, thank you so much, Clee, for Clee Benali, uh, an activist and anarchist. And you can find um, his pocket zine at indigenousaction.org, um, film the police and know your rights. And and, um, and please uh, um, follow the case of Tracy Molina, a native veteran who was arrested on Saturday at the Portland Patriot yeah, it, Prayer Rally. Thank you. Okay. And if I may just recommend, like, folks look at the National Lawyer, Lawyers Guild website. They have a lot of great resources for uh, preparing for uh, actions. And also, if you've been arrested or just understanding what your rights are, also the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, Midnight Special Law Collective, even though they're defunct, they're, they have a lot of resources. Study um, AIM history, Black Panther Party history, MOVE history, and, and Mumia. Also look at the Green Scare. There's a great book called Green is the New Red, looking at the criminalization of dissent and the treatment of activists or organizers as terrorists. And that's really part of the issue what we're facing if we talk about legitimacy. Um, anybody can be branded a terrorist these days, and then they're subject to extreme state repression. And that's really the environment that we're operating in. So it has to be resisted great. fiercely. All right. Thank you, Clay, so much. Yeah. Oh, um, this is Jacqueline Keeler uh, for Wednesday Talk Radio, and we are discussing uh, the, the criminalization of native descent. And you've heard it all on KBOO Portland. Coming up next, it's Projects Censored at 10 o'clock, Air Cascadia at 10.15 Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. And at 11 o'clock, the Dirtbag's back today talking about fruit trees and prepping for fall gardens. And you can become a part of it all if you go to kboo.fm and click where it says donate and become a member of this great station. Thanks. Here comes Project Censors. Censored. Welcome to the Project Censored Show. I'm Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're going to spend the hour looking at the perils of nuclear power, nuclear energy, and citizen science and activism. We are joined, the first part of the program, by filmmaker Robbie Lepser. We'll be talking about his new film, Power Struggle. Later in the program, we're joined by Fairwinds Energy Education Experts. Arnie and Maggie Gunderson, who will give us an update on what's been going on in Fukushima. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show. I'm Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're going to be looking at nuclear power, the perils of nuclear energy. We'll have an update on Fukushima. But for the first part of the program, we are joined by Robbie Lepser. We're going to talk about his recent movie, Power Struggle. Robbie Lepser is an award-winning independent documentary filmmaker and radio producer. His critically acclaimed feature-length and short documentaries, along with television news magazine segments, have been broadcast by CNN International, NHK, Japan Broadcasting Corporation, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, HBO, PBS, Sundance Channel, and many, many more, including National Public Radio, 
Free Speech TV and Pacifica Radio. Robbie Lepser, welcome to the Project Censored Show. Thank you so much for having me, Mickey. And again, we'll likely be having many more conversations with you given your long and illustrious career of activism and filmmaking. But on today's show, we're focusing on nuclear power, nuclear energy, fallout from Fukushima. And of course, this overlaps quite well with your Power Struggle movie. But let's talk a little bit about how you got into this kind of activism. Well, in terms of Power Struggle itself, I live 18 miles from Vermont Yankee. And so if there was ever to be a release, a major release of radioactivity from the plant, my community would be affected. So I became concerned and wanted to do something. I've had a long history of making documentaries chronicling social change movements. And I've been following, from a distance at least, the movement over the years to shut down Vermont Yankee. So when I heard that Vermont was the only state in the country whose legislature was empowered to make a decision about the future operation of a nuclear power plant, I thought as a documentary filmmaker that it would be fascinating to follow the process of citizens engaged in raising their voice about an issue they feel passionate about, in this case the future of energy and the safety of their communities, and I had no idea what the outcome would be or that I would spend five years making the film. Wow, five years in the making, and so much has actually happened in the five years during the making of the film, I'm sure. A lot happened. Basically, the grassroots citizen movement in Vermont decided to focus on the state legislature and their elected state officials. They had become so frustrated with the federal government and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the federal agency in charge of regulating nuclear power plants, they felt that that was hopeless. But they did have a, felt they had a chance to have an impact on the state level. So that's where they decided to focus their efforts, and they did have a big impact. Well, Robbie Lepser, later on in the program, we're going to be joined by nuclear energy experts Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson of Fair Winds Energy Education. And, of course, you not only know them, but they're actually featured in the film Power Struggle. Yes, I actually met Arnie and Maggie Gunderson while I was filming Power Struggle. In fact, I met them very early on in the process. I started filming when I heard that there was going to be a walk of activists from Brattleboro in the southern part of Vermont to Montpelier, the state capital. And this was going to be 126 miles over 11 days. And this is the key punchline, in the dead of winter. So that's when I began filming, because I thought, wow, to film people walking through Vermont through snow and ice, which really show the dedication of people. And I thought, well, I would film this, and then I'd put the footage on the shelf, because nobody knew when the Vermont legislature was going to vote. But little did I know that events had other plans for me. Literally, it was halfway through the walk. The activists hadn't even made it to the state capitol. was when Entergy, the power company that runs Vermont Yankee, and is in fact the second largest nuclear power company in America, announced that there was a massive leak of radioactive tritium, as well as other radioactive isotopes, into the groundwater below Vermont Yankee. And that started a whole political firestorm, not only about the contamination, but then Entergy was caught in a lie. A lie because the year earlier, Entergy had denied under oath to the Public Service Board of Vermont that there was underground pipes containing radioactivity. And now, when the leak happened, they had to say, oh, by the way, this leak came from these pipes that we formally denied existed. And the connection with Arnie Gunderson is that Arnie Gunderson is the nuclear engineer turned whistleblower who revealed this leak, who uncovered it. And I was filming him testifying in the Vermont legislature, and that's when I immediately recognized that he and his wife Maggie would play a prominent role in my film. Indeed, rightfully so. Arnie and Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education have been on the Project Censored show numerous times, and again, they'll be on later after our segment here with you, Robbie Lepser. And you, you are of Turning Tide Productions, so our listeners can go to turningtide.com to learn more about your work. And also, powerstrugglemovie.com is where listeners can find out more about your film. So, Robbie Lepser, here is the trailer to your film. This is the the film trailer for Power Struggle. 
the chain reaction process in the reactor creates tremendous heat, which scientists have learned how to control. It was really a patriotic thing to harness the atom. I was excited about nuclear engineering because I thought it would solve the world's energy crisis. And when everything works, they're, they're really a terrific way of making energy. The problem is that everything doesn't work all the time. Japan's nuclear nightmare continues. A second hydrogen explosion at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear complex destroyed the reactor's exterior. All three Daiichi reactors have nuclear fuel rods that have been exposed to some degree. So they're teetering on the edge of a meltdown. Fukushima it kind of stirred everybody to the reality of what nuclear power could do. There is no source of energy in this world that doesn't have risk associated with it. Our job is to protect public health and safety and never have an accident that jeopardizes public health or safety. Groundwater down there is being threatened and potentially the river water is being threatened. Something needs to be done right now. I believe that plan is unsafe. What has happened at Vermont Yankee is a breach of trust that cannot be tolerated. We were now being lied to. We have a lot of explaining to do, and we have to rebuild public confidence and trust. Um, we're operating a nuclear power plant. How can you trust a company who has really not taken seriously, in my opinion, the fact that we have leaking nuclear waste going into the ground? Einstein said that nuclear power is a hell of a way to boil water. It is toxically poisonous to humans for 250,000 years. I keep saying that number, 250,000 years. It's ridiculous. It's mind-boggling. That was the film trailer for Power Struggle, and we're talking with filmmaker Robbie Lepser. So, Robbie Lepser, let's talk a little bit more about the film and Arnie Gunderson. When I first met Arnie and Maggie Gunderson, I was totally impressed with their story and their backstory because... They were insiders in the nuclear industry uh, for 20 years, Arnie as a nuclear engineer, Maggie as a PR person in the nuclear industry. And in the film, I actually devote a whole segment of the film to telling the story of what happened to Arnie and Maggie back in 1990 when Arnie became an unwitting whistleblower in the nuclear industry when he reported a safety violation at his nuclear energy services company in Connecticut. And he thought he was just doing his job reporting the safety violation. And the company turned around and fired him and then blacklisted him from the industry and then sued him for a million and a half dollars on top of all of that. So they suffered greatly. So to me, Maggie and Arnie Gunderson are my personal heroes because they have been speaking truth to power for decades despite the nuclear industry's attempt to silence them. Now, you fast forward now 20 years, they move to Vermont, and they become involved in Vermont Yankee issues, and then the state of Vermont, the, the Vermont legislature, hires Arnie to be their nuclear watchdog in reevaluating the license for Vermont Yankee, whether it can be renewed for 20 years. And so Arnie was chairing a panel for the Vermont legislature overseeing the future reliability of Vermont Yankee, and that's when he uncovered the issue of the underground pipes and that energy had lied about. So he became very prominent in that whole controversy, and before that was revealed publicly by Entergy, Entergy actually tried to smear Arnie again and saying that he was a crackpot or had an extra grind, but then there was all egg over Entergy's face when they actually had to admit that Arnie was right and that they had in fact lied and that there had in fact been underground pipes. We also have a couple other clips from your film, and as you stated, you feature not just Arnie and Maggie Gunderson, but many other people, but perhaps we can also hear a clip of Arnie Gunderson talking about Fukushima connected to the Vermont Yankee safety flaws. Arnie in the film reveals that Fukushima and Vermont Yankee have the same exact design and the same exact design flaws. 
and he goes into detail in this clip. Okay, here's a clip from the movie Power Struggle by Robbie Lepser, and this features Arnie Gunderson. In the United States, there's 23 General Electric Mark I reactors identical to Fukushima Daiichi. Vermont Yankee came online almost identical time to Fukushima Daiichi Unit 1. They have the same design. They're the same reactor, same contractors worked on them, and the same flaws and weaknesses. The containment structure designed to hold in all the radioactivity after an accident is too small. By 1986, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had determined there was an 85% probability that the containment would blow up and fail in the event of a meltdown. So much hydrogen gas would be released that the containment would be blown to smithereens and all of the radioactivity inside it would be released to the public. Fukushima showed us 100%. Three of them blew up. The regulators have known that this design is incapable of withstanding an accident since it was built. During the middle of the crisis at Fukushima Daiichi, one of the key regulators at the NRC, a guy named Chuck Casto, said, this is the worst containment in the world. Well, if it's the worst containment in the world, why are we keeping 23 of them running here in America? The accident at Fukushima Daiichi was caused by an earthquake and a tsunami. But really, at the root of it was that the earthquake knocked out the offsite power and that the tsunami knocked out the cooling water pumps along the ocean. That can happen anywhere. You can lose offsite power from a storm or from a terrorist action, and you can lose the pumps that cool the plant from the same exact causes. So we don't need a tsunami, we don't need an earthquake to cause that kind of a damage in an American nuclear plant. That was another clip from a new movie called Power Struggle by Robbie Lepser. You can learn more at powerstrugglemovie.com. And Robbie Lepser, you chronicle many other people and struggles during the film uh, itself. So talk to us a little bit more about what's going on in the film. Grassroots groups have been opposing Vermont Yankees since the plant was built starting in 1972. So there's been a whole decade of struggle in Vermont around Vermont Yankee. I started filming in 2010, and Power Struggle, my documentary, really focuses on this movement from 2010 forward. And there was a whole coalition of various groups across the state and also in western Massachusetts. And one of the activists that I focus on in my film is Frances Crow, who was 93 years old when I first started filming her. She's actually 98 years old now and still going strong and she was part of an affinity group called the shut it down affinity group which was all women over 60 who would regularly go to vermont yankee and chain the gates shut or blockade the gates commit civil disobedience in front of the plant that's an incredible story in and of itself and we actually have a clip of francis crow from your movie it's a short clip so perhaps we can play that now I'm Frances Crow. I'm 93 years old, and I've been involved in trying to say no to the splitting of the atom and all of the consequences of it since 1945. When I heard about Fukushima, I was devastated. I felt I'd got to get there and really put my body at Vermont Yankee because... It's our potential Fukushima. Well, I've done everything that I know of to do, and all I have left is my body, and to put it in the way to say no. Like to remind listeners, you're listening to the Project Censored show. I'm Mickey Huff. We've been interviewing filmmaker Robbie Lepser. His new movie is Power Struggle. You can learn more about Robbie Lepser at his site, TurningTide.com, and learn more about the movie at PowerStruggleMovie.com. Robbie Lepser, let's talk about what also this film is about. It's about grassroots activism around these issues surrounding nuclear energy. 
What do you think and what did you find the impact of this activism? Well, I feel that the grassroots activists had an enormous impact in terms of the outcome of what happened with Vermont Yankee. In the summer of 2013, Entergy, the company that operates Vermont Yankee, announced that they were going to be closing Vermont Yankee a year and a half later in December of 2014. They claimed at the time that the reason for closing Vermont Yankee was solely because of finances and economics that the plant was losing money. However, the grassroots activism and the involvement of the Vermont state officials had an enormous impact in pushing Vermont Yankee over the edge that led to its eventual closure. And as you know, a story of grassroots activists, particularly grassroots environmental activists, having a victory is very rare these days. So the power struggle chronicles what I feel is a very inspiring story of activists actually winning and actually having a major impact that other activists around the country on a variety of issues could learn from and could be inspired from. And naturally, a film of not just your genre, but the magnitude and and the breadth of it, and you talked about making it over a period of five years. That's your contribution in terms of activism, and it's very important given that these grassroots movements usually don't get coverage in corporate media that they really rely on citizen journalism, on filmmakers, other activists that can really propel that message and get that message out to the public. And certainly that's something that you've been doing for a very long time. Well, I got a very early start when I was 18 and have really dedicated myself as a documentary filmmaker to chronicle grassroots movements because, as you just said, the mainstream corporate media really ignores them or gives very scant or distorted coverage to. So I feel like for me to focus my work on grassroots movements and really showing how people can inspire each other to be a force for change in the world is my contribution as a filmmaker to make a better world. Well, it's an incredible contribution, what what you're doing, Robbie Lepser. You highlight and showcase something that, that is a victory to celebrate for grassroots activists and certainly for people interested and concerned about the state of our environment, not just with climate change, but also the issues surrounding nuclear energy, nuclear power, and of course, by extension, nuclear warfare, which is still a very real problem that seems to oft get overlooked or ignored. But you know, another thing that's also been disappeared into the rearview mirror is the catastrophe in Fukushima in Japan and the fallout from that. Could you talk a little bit about some of the consequences? Well, one thing that many people don't realize, because it's just not on people's radar, is that nuclear power plants produce the most toxic poisons that will stay dangerous for a quarter of a million years. That's 250,000 years. And the the sad reality is that... Um, So my film, Power Struggle, has kind of a double ending. On the one hand, it's a victory of grassroots activism and showing the power of people to make change. On the other hand, the reality is is that that high-level radioactive nuclear waste is going to stay at the Vermont Yankee site and every nuclear power plant site across the country and around the world indefinitely because there's no place to put that high-level nuclear waste. And so this is an issue that we as a society have to grapple with. Indeed, Robbie Lepser. And I'd like to also remind listeners, you're listening to the Project Censored show. I'm Mickey Huff. And upcoming, we're going to air an interview that was pre-recorded with Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson. And they have some updates from Fukushima, Japan. And they're going to be talking to us about some of the serious problems with soil samples, as well as warn us about some future dangers about decommissioning and the ways in which it might be planned to get rid of nuclear plants that's actually very, very worrisome and troublesome. Well, what I would add about that is pay attention to what happens with Vermont Yankee. The plan is closed, but the real danger or the next level of danger is coming up with how Entergy, again, who is the second largest nuclear power company in America, is planning to decommission this plant. And they're proposing some processes that could set a precedent in terms of creating new public health threats that would uh, endanger the surrounding communities in how they dismantle the plant. 
And I would certainly encourage our listeners to look at the work of Robbie Lepser and TurningTide.com. This film that we've been talking about, sharing a few clips with you about, is called Power Struggle, and the website is PowerStruggleMovie.com. Well, Robbie Lepser, thank you so much for joining us today in the Project Censored show. We definitely look forward to uh, sharing your work, your film, and we'll certainly have you back on the program in the near future. Thank you so much, Mickey. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. This is the Project Censored show. I'm Mickey Huff. Coming up next is our interview with Arnie and Maggie Gunderson. They are of Fairwinds Energy Education. After that, we'll also hear from Poets Reading the News, so please stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we're going to be joined by the good people at Fairwinds Energy Education, fairwinds.org, F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S.org. Listeners of the Project Censored Show will recognize both Arnie and Maggie Gunderson. They have been guests on the Project Censored Show numerous times because we have covered concerns about nuclear power in the environment and particularly what's been going on for years now in Fukushima, Japan. Maggie Gunderson founded Fairwinds Energy Education back in 2008, whose mission has remained to educate the public about nuclear power production, engineering, reliability, and safety issues. Arnie Gunderson has more than 45 years of nuclear power engineering experience, and he also he has a master's degree in nuclear engineering, holds a nuclear safety patent, and was a licensed reactor operator. He's also a former nuclear industry senior vice president and has managed and coordinated projects at 70 nuclear power plants in the U.S. So, Arnie and Maggie, welcome back to the Project Censored Show. It's good to be back. Thank you, Mickey. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate this opportunity. Let's start with you, Arnie, because you were in Japan, and I want to remind listeners, because the corporate media has forgotten all about nuclear disaster in Fukushima, Japan, after the tsunami there back in 2011. Arnie Gunderson, could you give us a little update, and then we want to talk more about what you're all doing at Fairwinds. You're right. The world has forgotten about Japan. In fact, the Japanese are trying desperately to make sure the world does forget. You know, they want the world's attention on the 2020 Olympics, and don't worry about the man behind the curtain there with, with Fukushima. But this was my fourth trip. I went in September and taught Japanese citizen scientists how to take radiation samples. We wound up with 140 samples and shipped them back to a lab here in the United States. But we're developing a core of people over there who can send us samples without us being there. A couple of the real quick highlights, the wild boar population is booming in Fukushima, and that's because back before the disaster, they would kill them and eat them. But now they're so radioactive, they're, they can't be eaten. So the wild boar in Fukushima now are like deer in the United States. You know, you drive down the highway, and I was there for two weeks, and I saw three of them. They're so radioactive that they, the Japanese have a special incinerator that they have to incinerate the wild boar in. This is a signifier of what, then? It's a signifier that the ground contamination, they eat what's on the ground, is highly radioactive even now. We've been saying that for years, and that's that the prefecture is being recontaminated. The Japanese went through and they cleaned the towns that people live in and 10 to 
20 feet on either side of the roads. In that cleanup, they generated 30 million tons of radioactive waste. But that's only 5% of the prefecture. 95% of it they never cleaned up. And so now when the wind blows or the storm comes, all that contamination blows right back into these towns where the people are living. That's what we saw. We saw the wild boar are so contaminated. That's an indication that the cleanup has been ineffective. That's an amazing update. Maggie Gunderson, let's bring you into the conversation here. Remind our listeners what you do at Fairwinds Energy Education, and maybe this will help contextualize further some of the things that Arnie Gunderson was just saying. When we first began, we were doing more of a journalistic experience where we were telling people what was happening all the time at the meltdowns at Fukushima Daiichi, and then we've gone on to talk about all different sites. But during the last two and a half years, we've emphasized more science. We are working with other engineering colleagues and other doctors who have their PhDs in energy economy or in radiation dust, radioactive dust, for example, and we work with them to produce scientific data. Arnie and Dr. Marco Kaltofen of Worcester Polytechnic Institute had a peer-reviewed article in Staten, The Science of the Total Environment. And that's regarding the migrating radioactive dust and ongoing spread of radioactivity in Japan and other locations that they've tested and sampled. Tell us more about this sampling. What's exciting is the the fact that we're crowdsourcing our funding, that three of the four trips to Japan were were crowdsourced. Thank you very much to people of Japan and the Americans that contributed. And we're also now crowdsourcing the collection of radioactive material. Not just in Japan, we're collecting radioactive material in the UK, near the Sellafield nuclear reactor, and in uh, Chernobyl, and, and right here in the United States, you know, in, uh, in California, you guys had one of the very first meltdowns at Santa Susana. And we're still collecting vacuum cleaner bags from people's homes in the Santa Susana area. So we're crowdsourcing not only the, the funding to send me to teach citizens, but then we now have a core of citizens around the world who can send us good data. And that's really exciting. Many of these citizen scientists are scientists in other disciplines or science teachers, and they really want to pursue finding out the truth. And it's, it's just amazing, the response. So you all are, are, again, crowdsourcing and using citizen science as a way to get information. And is this because regulatory agencies, governments are failing to even address these issues or, or ignore them altogether? It's two-sided. One is the regulatory issues, and I'll let Arnie talk about that one a little bit. But the other one is that this type of data that we're analyzing, it's not airborne radiation in the terms of just monitored radioactive isotopes. It's dust, and that dust can blow in the wind, can be carried in the rain or the snow or in any washing down of of rain or snow melt and it's inhaled and then it bioaccumulates in the land and comes up in food sources or is eaten by wild boar cattle whatever and all those food sources are getting contaminated and then it'll cause gi cancers and lung cancers in the animals exposed and in the people exposed And getting back to that government issues, our government, the U.K. government, the Japanese government, all went out of their way to downplay Fukushima and continue to do that. One of the the great things about the paper that Dr. Kaltofen and I wrote is that it shows that the International Atomic Energy Agency's model for determining what the people of Japan are receiving in a dose is wrong. It's too low. The Japanese are underestimating what their population is receiving. But there's a lot of money on the other side of this argument. I was at the Japanese Atomic Energy Agency's lab in Fukushima, and they've got a $4 million lab. It's beautiful. And we asked them, well, where's your data? And they said, well, we have data. Matter of fact, they have 
pretty similar data to what Dr. Kaltofen and I have uh, determined. They said, we're just not releasing it. So they know what we know. They just don't want the world to know. So that seems to be our role right now as the person that's telling the world what corporations are not willing to tell them. We're speaking with Maggie and Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. That's fairwinds.org, F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S. You can go to the website to learn more. Uh, I'm Mickey Huff. This is the Project Censored show. And, of course, Project Censored has long covered not only the Fukushima catastrophe, but also issues with nuclear power and certainly issues within government and even regulatory agencies. And you just heard Arnie Gunderson talking about how it isn't necessarily such that these governments and agencies are unaware of problems that exist. It's that they are not sharing that information with the public, and apparently many in the corporate media aren't bothering to ask those questions. But we here at Project Censored are asking those questions, and we're very fortunate to know Arnie and Maggie Gunderson and the Fairwinds Education, Energy Education people, because they're on the ground. And they're dealing with citizen scientists, and they're coordinating information to get it to the public. So, Arnie and Maggie Gunderson, can you talk to us a little bit more about who some of the citizen scientists are, or what do you mean by that term? We've had people contact us wanting to help get information. And so we train them on how to do the sampling. And there are many people participating. There are a number of young mothers who want to protect their children. There are retired physicists, retired nuclear engineers who are really disturbed by what's happened in their country. There are medical doctors who were stopped from diagnosing patients with radiation. On the team that I had in Fukushima, there was an interesting blend. We had two Hibakusha, which are the uh, survivors of the A-bomb. One was a uh, Nagasaki survivor and another was a Hiroshima survivor. Uh, Another person had been, as a young boy, was firebombed in Tokyo. So we had this old guard who just did not want to see nuclear uh, get a foothold in Japan again. But then we had Toyota engineers who had worked for 10 years here in the States, and moms and dads, and lay people as well. So it was a, a wonderful blend. We've also had medical doctors, and the medical doctors have been prohibited from making diagnoses of radiation sickness. In fact, the Japanese require that they diagnose people whose hair is falling out, noses are bleeding, and skin is all blotchy. They have to say that's stress if they want to get paid. So it's a blend of people who just care passionately about the planet. So again, this is again what you're mentioning when you say citizen scientists, and you're being able to crowdfund, crowdsource, and raise funds to be able to help do this, and you're being contacted by so many people around the world. Arnie Gunderson, we should definitely be looking at how things are in Japan, Fukushima, and the region, but because we do live in the United States, and that's a concern for us that live here, whether we're in California on the West Coast or in the East Coast, can you tell us a little bit about some things that we should be paying attention to here? Let me tell you about two things, and then Maggie has a global warming issue as well. You know, California had a near miss just recently, and it was not publicized at all. You had that large dam that was in danger of collapsing. They yes. If it had collapsed, it would have flooded downtown Sacramento. Well, there was a nuclear power plant in Sacramento years ago called Rancho Seco. The plant is gone, but the nuclear fuel is still there. And if that dam failed, that nuclear fuel would have been flooded with muddy water and not been able to cool. On the East Coast, we had Sandy, just about 60 miles south of New York City a couple of years ago, and houses were floating down the street blocking the evacuation paths. 39 emergency sirens out of 45 didn't work, and the emergency cooling pumps were within six inches of being flooded out. That's Arnie Gunderson at Fairwinds Energy Education. We're speaking with Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson. We're talking about the radioactive fallout and issues regarding nuclear power, certainly what has happened in Fukushima years ago, and also things to worry about in the United States. I'm Mickey Huff. This is the Project Censored Show. We're going to take a brief musical break, but when we come back, we're going to hear from Maggie Gunderson, and we're going to shift some of the focus to global warming. Please stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show. I am your host, Mickey Huff. Our guests today are Arnie and Maggie Gunderson. They are on the board of directors of Fairwinds Energy Education. We're talking about nuclear energy and environmental hazards, contamination, and some dangers here, of course, associated with it over the years, stemming back not just to Fukushima, but prior. And before the break, you heard Arnie Gunderson leading our conversation into climate change and global warming. And Maggie Gunderson, you wanted to say something about that? Well, there's several major issues of concern here in the U.S. First off, the Mark I nuclear reactors, boiling water reactors, that are still operating, that are the same model as Fukushima, have not had the required modifications and haven't taken into consideration the climate change impact or the results of those meltdowns. Along with that is the hurricane issue and the climate change issues confronting all of the ocean bordering plants. As the seawater rises, and it is rising, then the pumps get wiped out, and that's what happened at Fukushima Daiichi. And during this last hurricane, Irma, they kept plants running in Florida. It's really hard when the plant is kept running because the fuel is very, very hot. And that means it's harder to cool down. It, if the pumps are wiped out, then there's going to be a meltdown. And Florida Power and Light did not take the appropriate action. They didn't shut their plants down in the midst of a major hurricane. In Florida, Turkey Point has two operating nukes and two new nukes that are proposed and not yet under construction. Well, the storm surge for the new nukes, because of global climate change, is going to be 10 feet higher than the storm surge for the old nukes that are already operating. Now, you would think then that the solution would be to shut down the old nukes, because they obviously can't withstand a 21st century storm surge. But the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said, no, they said they have their license and they're good to go for 60 years. And, you know, Hurricane Harvey, a hurricane that hit Houston, caused all kinds of problems in in the petroleum refinement industries. And there's just a, a toxic stew and, and soup there. Again, not to compare or contrast levels of disaster, but I mean, it just seems like the lack of planning, this is literally setting us up for catastrophe and not just local, but on a global scale. You know, Harvey, there was a nuclear plant right near there called the South Texas Project. And management kept it running right all the way through it in some sort of a macho-induced adrenaline rush. But can you imagine if there had been a flood of the cooling pumps, which has already happened on several occasions, how could you have evacuated Houston when it was flooded? Our emergency planning assumes a, a beautiful day where people can get on their cars and drive away very peacefully. But in the middle of mayhem, which is much more likely that a disaster would occur, There's no way an evacuation plan can be effective. So, yeah, it's an awful situation. Global warming makes nuclear power even more dangerous. Maggie Gunderson, let's go back to you. And we kind of, you know, we begin to wind down the segment. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk more about Fairwinds Energy Education, either you or Arnie, your website, so much information on it about demystifying nuclear power on meltdowns, uh, certainly ways to, that our listeners could, could support your work. Talk to us a little bit more about why you're doing these things and what, what's going on. Both Arnie and I came from the nuclear industry, and we believed in the Atoms for Peace program, which was supposed to stop nuclear proliferation. But as we belatedly learned in our careers, it's all one cycle. It's one fuel cycle, or we call it a fuel chain because it can be broken, and that the nuclear power industry is intertwined with the weapons industry. And we need to shut that down, whether it's the weapons or the production of nuclear weapons or whether it's nuclear power. No human being should be able to push these buttons or create something that can't be cleaned up, like you said, has a toxic stew. You can't see, smell, or taste radiation unless there's a major, major catastrophe. And then there's a metallic taste, but you still can't see the radiation moving towards you. So people don't know when they're getting 
major doses of radiation, and that's happening in locations all around this country and overseas, in UK, in Japan, and in other countries where they're having releases and they tell people nothing's happened. So that's really what Fairwinds is all about. You know, we try to keep citizens, and most of our work is always in English, but some of it's translated into German as well as Japanese. We try to teach citizens about the hazards of the atom. And if you go up on the site, there's over 200 videos, probably 100 podcasts, and numerous, numerous articles and pieces of work that we've done. And it's pretty searchable, too. So I advise people to check out fairwinds.org. There's an E in the middle of that. And while you're there, please hit the donate button. Uh, this crowdsourcing does require us to do work, and plane fare to Japan is $2,000. So we try to keep our costs down, but there still are costs. Well, Arnie and Maggie Gunderson, I thank you for your work and for always coming on and sharing your work on the Project Censored Show. I know that we already have some plans to talk again in the near future to talk about some other information you have and some other reports and studies that you're doing in addition to what you're finding with soil contamination and other things. Also, that you're featured as protagonist in a new film called Power Struggle, a documentary film about democracy in action in Vermont. So thank you again for coming on the program. Special thanks to Robert Manning, John Bertucci, promotion of the program and connections. And thank you both for the important work you do. Thank you, Mickey. Thank you, Mickey, for having us on, and thank you for all you do for freedom in this country. This is the Project Censored Show. I'm Mickey Huff. Coming up, we'll hear from Poets Reading the News. Please stay with us. Come on, Welcome back to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Our listeners may remember we had El Aviv Newton on of Poets Reading the News. She is the co-editor of PoetsReadingTheNews.com. And Jenna Spaniolo is also here today, the co-editor of PoetsReadingTheNews.com. And they're joining us here in studio again today. And we'd like you to remind our listeners what exactly is Poets Reading the News and why are we having poets reading the news. So, uh, Jenna, tell us. Thanks, Mickey. Thanks for having us on. So, Poets Reading the News is the world's only newspaper written entirely by poets. What we're doing is we're reinventing the way that journalism can be read by putting first and foremost poetry and art. So, um, today, given the fact that you guys have been talking a lot about environmental issues in Fukushima, Elle and I brought a couple of poems that deal with the end of the world. That's right. That's what we're here to talk about. It sometimes feels that way every day. Uh, There's a new reason, a new thing, a new something that happens that makes us really question where where we're heading, not just in the United States, but globally in in terms of being a species, it seems. And, you know, the topics earlier on, on nuclear energy, contamination and so on. And Elle, when you were on the show couple weeks ago, we we talked uh, sort of about the cathartic uh, kind of release and different ways of sort of processing things uh, that we can hear through poetry and arts, you know, the melding of poetry and journalism. And again, we're very intrigued by by the the, the good work you're doing. And you're over a year old now, right? Yeah. And so you're getting more, uh, more people are getting interested and you have more people sending in submissions. That's right. Yeah. We have a very dynamic and supportive group of writers and readers who have been supporting us. And You know, we're really committed to highlighting marginalized voices, highlighting poems from all around the world, and we welcome even the amateur poet to send work into us. 
And how can people do that, just since uh, this is the way of maybe getting that word out even more? Sure, just visit our website. It's www.poetsreadingthenews.com. We have a helpful submissions page. And as Jenna mentioned, we're open to absolutely everyone. As I spoke about, we have lots of journalists returning to poetry now. We accept work from, from people who haven't really written it before. And then we also have like incredibly established writers come as well so it's it's really a range of people it's definitely a fantastic project it's a brilliant idea and uh, poetsreadingthenews.com is where you can learn more so uh, Elle and Jenna you're going to read to us a few germane poets uh, about the from today's topic indeed we are we're going to dive into the archives a little bit not too far to find some works that deal with North Korea and the arms race that's happening in the world okay so the first poem actually how about Jenna how about you read the first poem Sure. So this is called Warhead. It's by Alejandro Escude. He's a poet writing out of Los Angeles. The Missile is a powerful poem, black against the sky, arcing over the earth, conquering nature, beholden to none. DPRK generals leaping in the photo. What glee? Are they feeling the jubilation of the self-made soul? We watch the footage of the large projectile, a casing, make its way along cluster upon cluster of red flags. What language does nature speak? Whatever the case, the Pacific has never been so small, especially in California, where the waves are preternatural, neon-laden, dumb as the clock inside a warhead the size of Hannibal's elephant. The imagery there certainly uh, makes us think of some of the things that we're talking about just earlier when we had Arnie and Maggie Gunderson on who were talking about Fukushima and uh, the, the, the unfolding disaster that's still going on there. Uh, and also, of course, that even though these things seem so far away, globally we're all con- connected with uh, you know, our ecosystems. So uh, very, very poignant uh, materials. Elle, you have something to share with us today. I do. I have a poem straight from the end of the world. And it's called Oh, Let It Be an Arms Race by M.F. Simone Roberts, who is based in D.C. And it begins with a quote by someone she titles simply 45. We will outmatch them at every pass and outlast them all. Let the sky glow dark and prowl with fury, liquefy or open its mouth to scream and the air run off to safer planets. Oh, let arms race to lift each other just slightly up now. Support the back to open the chest, up to chase the air chasing itself out of the sky. Laced arms and arched trunks, we could be our own defiant fence, a shelter for someone softer, a watershed of arms encircling anyone left thirsty on the wrong end of the old world, its fear, its metal and trembling law. Let us be a race to gaze longest into each other's eyes, Regard the dust of long-dead suns, blasted and never-known planets, swirling and waving in the tides of our blood anyway. A bit of the great ocean spilling, maybe, over a lid and onto a cheek. So difficult is it for mortals to look to the back of time and say yes. Oh, let us race to translate adoration with our arms until we cry the widest yes to every future we must live into now. Even that one where, you know the one, a tiny star returns us to being stars. Let us live into whatever may come singing. If we must race to a flashing end, let the boiling air slam our ghosts onto the shattering walls behind us. Like graffiti sprayed by the angel of history, all the world churning to rubble in her wings sky-wide wake. Of billions of crime scene outlines, of our last being, arms braced, holding each other up, ready, and forward, even into this yes. And the future race, yes, of more intelligent, yes, and gentle creatures, yes. We'll see our ghosted shadows, yes, and tell stories about never giving in and never, yes, oh yes, letting fall. Ooh, yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> certainly a couple a couple of stanzas there that stick out, certainly the, the ghostly talk and, and imagery as well as the... Uh, the billions of crime scene outlines. These are very heavy, heavy topics, but it, this gives us almost a, a more, such a more visual, although obviously literary, but visual way. What are your thoughts, Elle? 
I thought when I first read this poem, thank God she wrote this poem, because I have always thought of the threat of nuclear war as this total abstraction that, that couldn't be faced. And then I read this work and this poet does an incredible job of, of yes, as you say, like provoking these images and and what it would really mean, like really going far enough to explore what would it mean if, if like literally an entire country or, or the world were to meet such a devastating end as that? Would there ever be someone to think about the implications of what we did? What would it look like? And also just to explore, you know, how absurd this notion is that we've come here as a species. Uh, Jenna, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I think in a way this poem is reflective on the fact that some things are out of our hands, right? We can do a lot as activists and as private citizens to work for a better world. But at a certain point, there are actors who are not acting in our best interest and who might be incredibly incompetent. That's why it begins with that quote by Trump, right? Yeah. 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 So where would this poem is helpful to me to figure out how to let go of some of that anxiety. It's true. It's Yeah, it's a poem of, of surrendering to circumstance in some way. Indeed, an, an important thing, too, that the arts and poetry allow us to do. It sometimes journalism you know, really ramps us up and leaves us on edge and doesn't leave us with enough solutions or paths or, or even more. Just sometimes we can't necessarily find the immediate solution or to a particular problem, but certainly maybe helps us deal with or comprehend these things in a bigger way. Yeah, it definitely does. Jenna Spaniolo, Elaviv Newton, thanks so much for joining the Project Censored show. Poetsreadingthenews.com is where to go, and stay tuned to future Project Censored shows as we hope to have more poets reading the news. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mickey. Appreciate it. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. That's why you hear the same old things they claim, but change never came. It's a dirty game maintained by rain for capital. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, executive producer along with Peter Phillips. Our senior producer is Anthony Fest, and Erica Bridgman is our engineer. The Project Censored show airs on some 40 stations across the U.S. from Maui to New York. To learn more about how to bring the Project Censored show to your community, you can contact me at mickey at projectcensored.org or through our website. Please follow and like us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll see you next time. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, unless otherwise noted. The Engineering Committee has been rescheduled to July 11th at 7 p.m. Please join us. Hi, this is John Schuck. On the next Beloved Community, I welcome Cynthia McKinney, former Congresswoman and candidate for president, She speaks candidly about 9-11, the deep state, COINTELPRO, the Russians, the media, Israel, and more. Beloved Community, August 10th, Friday, 9 a.m. on KBOO. You're listening to KBOO Portland. And um, coming up next is Air Cascadia. Headlines, interviews, and commentary with Chris Andre at 10.15 Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. And at 11 o'clock, the Dirtbag talks about fruit trees and prepping for fall gardens. And remember that all these KBOO programs are made possible by members' support. If you'd like to become a member, go to kboo.fm and click where it says Donate. And KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO listener members 
and support from Oregon Symphony, located at 909 Southwest Washington Street in downtown Portland, presenting Gary uh, yeah, presenting Gary Trudeau, political cartoonist and creator of Doonesbury Comics, sharing from his late- latest book, Sad, Doonesbury Doonesbury in the Time of Trump, Tuesday, October 16th at 7.30. Tickets and more information available by phone at 503-228-1353 or online at orsymphony.org. And we're going to move on to Air Cascadia. <laughs> 